We're going to pray, and then we'll look at Luke 20 as Jesus continues his amazing rampage through the Temple Mount. God, we're in awe of your brilliance, of your love, of your composure. You get to be our God. It's so amazing and so encouraging. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for choosing us, undeserved as we are. We get to be on the winning team. And we get to serve you, a great and amazing God. I do pray that as we behold you and stand even in greater awe of you, that it really does translate into greater submission, greater service, greater enthusiasm for all that is your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So as, as we've left off last time, Jesus went on a bit of the offensive. He had already thwarted the scribes, the chief priests, the elders, the teachers of the law, who had come to him trying to undermine his authority. And after having turned them upended on their own questions and have them reeling on their heels, he then brings them this, this parable of the tenants to really then indicate, to, to convict them and, and, and indict them on what they had made out of the blessings of God. And so, but we're on the Temple Mount as all this is going on. It's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Throngs and throngs of, of seekers and pilgrims are all around. Messianic fever is at a high pitch. It is tension filled. All are wondering what is going on during all of this. And all the while, we know that even though they have been thwarted, the, the, the religious leaders have now retreated and they've begun conspiring among themselves for a way to assassinate the character and literally assassinate Jesus. And as they're conspiring, they get another idea. And they think this time, we're not going to attack a weakness. This time we're going to attack a strength. He's established himself as Messiah. He's established himself as boss. Well, then let's go ahead and attack that very idea that he's Messiah. And so... Off they go, and let's let's begin reading reading in this spot. And remember, I'll, I'll start at 19 where we ended last week. The teachers of the law, the chief priests, looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. And so the populace, the throngs, hoi polloi, they're all in support of Jesus. But they were keeping a close watch on him, these leaders were. And they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. The word pretended here is, is the Greek word, for the verb form of hypocrite. So they, their hypocrisy actually was a front for sincerity. Why? They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So, here he is. He's the Messiah, right? Let's do this. Let's trap him in his claim of being the Messiah. Because if he tries to establish authority that is in opposition to Caesar, in opposition to Rome, well, let's just let them do the dirty work for us. So let's give it over to them. So the spies questioned him. Teacher, we know... That you speak and teach what is right. 
and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Warning, warning, warning. Right? In our family, if one of our children come to us and say, Mom, Dad, you know what would make a really great family memory today? We know that's just another way of saying, you're going to buy us water park tickets. We want you to buy us Bush Garden tickets. But of course they can't come right out and say that. So it's all this kind of, you know, pretty language about the fabric of memories and how we look back and we cherish these special times of our lives. And, oh my goodness, remember when we did this? And, oh, how we love looking back over those pictures. Why don't we make more of those pictures today? (laughs) And so they ask, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? This tax that they're referring to is the tribute tax. It's not a very big tax, by the way, but it is a tax that requires the denarius here with the image of Caesar on it. And for the Jews, while while a lot of the different conquered peoples in the Roman Empire had no issue with this little tribute tax to Caesar, the Jews, according to Josephus, the historian of this era, they were fiercely nationalistic. And wanted at every moment to throw off the yoke of oppression that was Rome. That's why there was such a messianic fever pitch going on. Who's the Messiah? Who's the Braveheart? Is going to rise up and cast out those oppressors and allow us the sovereignty that is ours in God again. And the tribute tax, trivial though it might be from a monetary standpoint, just graded against the Jews in every possible way. It is interesting that Matthew includes that the Herodians joined the Pharisees in this. Now the Pharisees, they were fiercely nationalistic, Zionistic, like get those Romans out of here, where the Herodians were like, well, maybe we can make a little something, something out of this. And, you know, I mean, isn't it true that God allowed a sovereign nation to conquer us? So, obviously, it's God's will. So, what's the harm in a little bit of tax that we've got to pay? Especially if we're the ones who are in a position to get a little bit of extra authority under the sham king Herod and be able to exercise that authority to our advantage. These two groups that hated each other suddenly are in cahoots and come together with one goal. They want to nail Jesus. On this issue. They want to nail Jesus on something else too. But they want to nail him on this issue. And they remembered last time. You remember what went down? We asked that question. About alright. Where did you get this authority to come in here. And get up in our grill. The way that you just did. Where did you get this authority? Who gave it to you? They realized that question was a bit too broad. And Jesus was then able to have enough maneuvering room. To whoop boom bring it right back on them, and egg on their face. So this time they said, all right, let's word the question differently. We can't have these open-ended questions where who knows where he's going to go. Let's confine it and bring him in, maneuver him into a corner. We're going to ask basically a yes or no question. And so they maneuver him into this, and they say, tell us, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? A or B, yes or no, those are the options that you have available to you. He saw through their duplicity and said to them, show me a Daenerys. 
whose image and inscription are on it. And at, at this moment, as they go scrambling for a denarius, realizing what's going to be on that denarius, now the tension in the crowd must have spiked at this point. When, okay, it's all coming to a head. There's all these supporters of Jesus. There's the enthusiasm to kick out Rome. It's all there in the thousands upon thousands that are all gathered all around the temple. There's Jesus in the center of it. Here are these spies fawning admiration, but it's all a bunch of sham. And now it's all coming to a head with this coin that gets brought out at this moment. And they're about to nail him. He's going to answer this question. It's a yes or no question. What's going to go down? And he says, show it to me. Who's on it? Whose inscription? And they replied, Caesar's. And he said to them, And give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public. Astonished by his answer, they became silent. I got two points today. And I love this passage, by the way. Like, I love this picture of Jesus that we get here on the temple. He is smooth and collected. Doesn't matter how crazy intense the whole situation is, Jesus is just chilling and whipping up on them in every sort of fashion. I love this. My first point is give it up for Jesus. I mean, really. I mean, it's, it's as though, it's like, it's like Rodolfo has got you in the witness chair. And he's like bringing his whole intimidating bearing up upon you. And he's like, just answer the question. Answer the question. Yes or no. Yes or no. But you're able to look calmly back at him. Not flinch at all. You pause another second. He brings it to you again. It's just that. Yes or no. What's your answer? And you just stare back at him and say, or. <laughs> now, why is it such a big deal? Why is their question so hard? Well, if he says that it's okay to pay the tax, and that's all that he says in this case, well then, all those that are so enthusiastic about a Messiah that is going to deliver them from Rome will be completely disillusioned, and he'll lose all the popular support that was his on the Temple Mount. But if he says, no, it's not okay, well then... The religious leaders think, we're going to win then as well. Either way, it's a win-win for us. Ha, 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 we got them. And watch our steam. And by the way, this is what rabbis were great at. They were great at coming up with crafty and cunning questions. They were very brilliant in this sort of dialogue back and forth with one another. And it seems as though they had gone back and thought of, all right, let's think of every possible scenario of the way this could go down. Because even if he says yes to, I'm sorry, if he, if he says no, you should not pay the temple tax, guess what? Even though the crowds are going to be like, yeah, come on, Jesus, bring us into freedom, freedom. 
You may say to yourself years from now, you can take away our, our lives, but you can never take our freedom. Right? I mean, all that enthusiasm. But in the very same moment, if he said that, then he would then be in complete rebellion to Rome. And apparently his time has not yet come. It'll come later this week. Has not yet come. But he would have been then not uh, only discredited by Rome, but he would have been killed by Rome. Because rebellion against Rome is a crucifiable offense. And, and what were the Jews trying to do? They were trying to assassinate, destroy Jesus. So why not let Rome do it? So this way, either way, we win. Oh my goodness, this is going to be so great. Come on, let's get our best spies, butter them up. That's fine. You can say all that stuff in front of the people. It's all, they think it's true anyway. Go ahead, bring it. And then all of a sudden, Jesus, cool cat that he is. Show me the denarius. The fact that one of the Pharisees had to dig into their cloak and pull out a denarius right away has put them on their heels. Whoa, 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 even for the crowds. What is that guy doing with a denarius? He's an emissary, one of the spies, he's an emissary from the leaders, and he's pulling out a denarius with that hateful inscription. What is Exodus 20 verse 4? Exodus 20 verse 23, I think it says, is to, to make no image out of gold or silver. That's why these Jews hated this, this, this wherever we were, that coin that you saw before. They hated him too. But, but it's why they hated that coin is because it flew in the face of the very commandments given on that fiery mountain of Sinai. It was repulsive to them at their core. And here he is like, uh, I happen to have one right now. <laughs> what? Dude, what are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> and then to be exposed as they were exposed earlier in Luke, Luke 16, 14 says the Pharisees who loved silver, literally, and this is a silver coin, uh, heard all this and they were sneering at Jesus. I mean, this is the, the description of these Pharisees. Yeah. And again, Jesus, they're hoping to basically impale him on the horns of this dilemma and at this fevered pitch is able to, to just simply thwart it all, realizing that he, he doesn't affirm Rome at this point. What he does is he transcends Rome. He affirms what Isaiah 40, verse 15 says. The nations are but a drop in the ocean. They are but, scale, they are but dust on the scales. Jesus is basically saying with the fullness of this statement, nations are a rounding error when you're trying to weigh something. That's all they are. And if this little thing was produced by Caesar... And he wants it back. Back it goes. That's not what my life is about. I'm not about possessions, I'm not materialism, I'm not about any of that. I'm about what's going to come in the kingdom to come. You know, take it back. What, 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 what's that to me? But then he doesn't stop there. And then he addresses this to this self-same group of supposed emissaries. But you give to God what is God's. If this were a rap battle, his posse right now would be like, Oh, 
Snap! I think at this point, if you're one of Jesus' disciples, you just put this bumper sticker on the back of your donkey. If if I'm one of Jesus' disciples on the Temple Mount at this point, I'm like, yeah, you know what? I knew that dude had something going on. But like, he took them all down. My rabbi can beat up your rabbi. And for us, really, our God can beat up your God. Because there's no other God to enter the ring. But this affirms in such a, I mean, poignant way, right there on the Temple Mount, we got Jesus. That's our boy. You go, Jesus. Yeah, boy. Right? I can't imagine how fired up the disciples must have been. Just the admiration for Jesus is busting through the roof at this point in time. And it's, and it's not just that they can be overwhelmed with jubilation that, oh, we picked the right rabbi. Praise God. But, but so did we. We picked the right God. We picked the only God. This is our God. Boy, this is our God. Oh, snap. This is our God. The one and only God, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. He will come back in triumph like nothing that we can ever imagine. This little skirmish here is going to look like child's play when we get to behold Jesus in the next turn around. When he's coming on the white horse and his thigh has got Lord of Lords and King of Kings written down it with the sword coming and conquest upon him. Then we're going to be like, yo, I backed the right rabbi. (laughs) Amen. Amen that I've got the right God. And so we do. But we don't just leave it at that like, ah, we're right. Aren't we superior? Let's do the the, the superiority dance, right? It's church lady, Saturday Night Live. This is not a story for us to have one-upsmanship on the complete farce that is Muhammad or Buddha. And you don't even like me saying that, right? Why? Because your culture has, like, crushed you. And, oh, how can you say that? Because they claim that Jesus didn't die on a cross and rose again. Because they try to take... All of it is bunk. We got Jesus. It'll be all right. Put him in a ring with, with Buddha or Muhammad. Three seconds, boom, done. We're all right. And we need to be able to exalt that and, and to not be ashamed in any way that this is our God. Now, I'm going to take a quick excursus before I go into the second point. Because we, you know, we, we've had some current events lately that kind of has this issue of render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, render unto God what is God. You know, in the recent Supreme Court ruling that... Uh, the dissenting opinion of Judge Scalia said, as, as they basically ratified homosexual marriage as the law of the land in our country, uh, and, and, and it's not so much that they gave rights to certain individuals. Amen. Do, do what you want. 
Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. That's Caesar's prerogative, and, and, and off the state can go in any of those situations. But do not arrogate to yourself what is God's. And Scalia wrote in his dissenting opinion, hubris is sometimes defined as overconfident pride. And we know pride goeth before a fall. He actually quoted that wrong. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. But never mind. That's right. <laughs> and we know that pride goeth before a fall. Proverbs 16, 18. With each decision of ours on this court that takes from others a question properly left for them to answer, we move one step closer to being reminded of our impotence. And, and that is exactly where, where the, the court went in this situation. They overstepped their boundaries. And in a zeal to be able to bring about civil unanimity of rights, they stepped into a sacred realm. A realm in which they had no business adjudicating. And declared nine, nine people that in no way represent the populace of the United States. Declared that what God had instituted, we no longer leave for God to define. But for us, fallen creatures, we will now, thank you very little, define what it is that you instituted. And that's why it's such a repulsive initiative by the Supreme Court. Now, for, for them to extend rights, call it civil union, do all of that, extend marital uh, benefits of sorts, which, which allows you to do things with a will or do things with medical directives, yeah, but don't call it marriage. Right? Let, let any of those particular civil rights be the case. I'm fine. Do, do what you got to do. But to then suddenly take what in Genesis 1 and 2 was not instituted by man, but as all major world religions, but especially the Judeo-Christian ethic, affirms, affirms completely, is that marriage is an institution ordained sacredly by none other than our Creator to see His will fulfilled. And to then take that and corrupt it and, and bend it to your will because the label will make people feel warm and fuzzy. Well, the trade-off is not worth it. And my goodness, to be one of those that voted for it and then to stand before a holy God. God forbid for what that, that will be. So anyway, as, as a side note, that's a, a simple situation where, hey, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Bring the rights. Fine. Why not? Insurance, equity, medical directive, amen. Bring it on. That's fine. But to take the sacred institution and, and allow it to be corrupted in its definition, God forbid. God forbid. Never again. Well, anyway, um, in our first point here, give it up for Jesus. But it's not just like, yes, how cool is Jesus? But every time that we are flush with enthusiasm of realizing, that's right, that's my God, that's my Jesus, then we also have to realize we don't just give it up for Jesus, but secondly and lastly, I mean, we give it 
up to Jesus. And render unto God what is God's. Now, flush with enthusiasm, let's settle in for a moment and really ponder, have I given back to God what is God's? The word that Jesus uses there is, is literally the word for having received something. You, you now have a debt and you need to give this debt back. So give back to Jesus what is Jesus. Says. And what is it that Jesus has done for us? Jesus has lifted the debt of a life of sin. We've indulged our flesh over and over and over again, countless ways. Jesus bore the full brunt of that debt fully for us, amazingly for us. And it leaves us now recognizing, I need to now, with this new lease on salvation, this new promise for the age to come, this new alignment with the will of God, this new adoption into the family of the divine, that with all of this, I need to now recognize with every step that I take, I do it all for the pleasure of God. The purpose of my life is to please God. The entire trajectory, the arc of what I do is now not to please self. And what was at the core of this crowd? They didn't like the fact that their own authority was being usurped. And they were having now to acknowledge the authority that Jesus was outlining. The authority of God. Everybody has this issue. Everybody struggles with wanting to be Lord rather than letting Jesus to be Lord. And a lot of people are happy with saying Lord. And there are a lot of bumper stickers out there that say Jesus is Lord. But those bumper stickers are going 78 miles an hour down the highway. It's not just that we're good at saying a religious phrase, but when the crunch time comes, can I really subordinate my will when not the rubber meets the sky in theory, but when the rubber meets the road in everyday life, can I really give it all up to Jesus? Not just affirm him, but surrender and obey Jesus. Not out of duty, although that's not bad if that's all you got. But out of overwhelming amazement and awe and enthusiasm and gratitude. This is my Lord. Holy moly. That This is the Lord that redeemed me and allowed me to have this life. And so when the decisions get hard, and they will get hard. Oh, but that, that girl is laughing at every one of your jokes at school or at the workplace. Well, that ought to like... Give you pause. You're not that funny. (laughs) Something's afoot. Yeah, she may talk a good religious game, but are you really in the end going to align yourself with pleasing God or yourself? But this job opportunity is going to be so sweet. And And the tax implications in that state are less onerous. And... And I, and I think we're going to finally be able to get on top of our debt. And I think we're going to finally be able to have that kind of security financially that I want to have for my family. Yeah, but what of that is all about Jesus? Could, could not actually living simply in a place where you can really be fed and developed spiritually 
Could, could, could that not possibly be a, a potential? And could God not bless that immensely? Because you've now surrendered your will over to him and, and to see what really happens there. We're going to have an infinite number of decisions. That's why when Andrew uh, just, just yesterday or day before was able to stand before everybody on the beach, and we've said this before, and be able to proclaim Jesus is Lord. Yes. Proclaim it with his mouth and believe it in his heart. Yes. There was an eruption of ovation yes. at that very moment. That's a huge deal, and it's a huge deal for everyone who has said it that has affected us. We didn't say it for nothing. We said it because we were overwhelmed that Jesus is our boy, that Jesus is our Lord. But now that it is, let it be that we honor him. We don't become like these religious hypocrites that are now trying to find ways to split hairs and say, well, do I really have to, you know, be able to, I mean, should I, do I really have to tithe, for example? I mean, does the Bible, does the New Testament really say that? Or is that Old Testament concept? Never mind that Jesus affirms it. But, but do I really have to? I mean, is that, is that really something that's, that's necessary for me to do? I mean, when we get into that mode where we're trying to argue in, in different ways, oh my goodness, we have lost sight of the joy, the unbridled joy it's meant to be ours. We've had a debt upon debt taken care of, completely eradicated by Jesus, and now we're free. The chains of oppression of sin have been loosened. By the gift of repentance and the assurance of the Holy Spirit given to us. And now we are set free to run with God's speed for His glory. Let it be that we are people that are not just like, yeah, Jesus is great. But that we show it in everything that we do. In every way that we live. In the decisions that we make. In the, even in the, I mean, big ones. Who it is that you're going to date? Who it is that you're going to marry? What kind of job it is that you're going to take? What kind of college it is that you're going to attend? These are big ones. And it's interesting that a lot of religious folk that I know make all of those decisions without really even considering God's will. When I was campus minister for 10 years, uh, I, would, I would study the Bible with the religious uh, folks that wanted to seek God. And the one question I would always begin with is, so how did you choose ODU or CNU? And not one bit of it had to do with, well, it seemed like a really great place for me spiritually. Matter of fact, when I would probe and say, any other reasons? Any other reasons? Until all the reasons were exhausted, guess what reason never came up? Jesus never came up. And, and oftentimes, even with a girlfriend or a spouse or even a job opportunity, the reason that does not come up, no matter how, how deep you go, even with people that purport to be rather devout in their following of Jesus, is that the one reason that doesn't come up is Jesus. Like on the stuff that really does matter and really does get us at, at our very heart. Boy, I, I remember some of the hard decisions. For me, I, I, I was living in Maryland and it was, it was this house that I loved. I bought this really cool 100 plus year old farmhouse. And we were completely restoring it. We had turned the attic into a third floor. It was sweet. There was a guest house that used to be the post office on the property. There were six, uh, three acres in the back that was all 
pasture land and there was a big barn in the back and all the horses in the area entered Patapsco State Park, which was the rear of my property. So it was all parkland from behind there. And, and I had just completely redone the house. It was looking good, looking sweet. Even the guest house had been renovated and it was now a rental property. Looking great. And, and I remember just an offhand comment by one of the sisters of saying, well, that's nice, but you know, God, God may actually just end up calling you somewhere else even pretty quickly. So hopefully you keep all that in perspective. And I remember in my heart saying, oh, he wouldn't do that. No, no, no. He, no, 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 no. He would know. He would know how I'd become like Jesus as a carpenter and doing all of these things. He would know. You know what? Within six months, I was asked to leave my job at Coca-Cola, which I loved, enter into the ministry, which I did love more, way more. And then, but within that six-month time frame, too, is like, oh, and, and by the way, go ahead and say goodbye to that house, because uh, we, we, we need you to, to, to work ministry down in Washington, D.C., rather than up here in Baltimore. And, but, you know, pra- praise God that I had thought it through earlier. We're like, he would never do that. Like, oh, what? How am I even talking like that right now? <laughs> What's going on? Where, where have I gotten to in trying to assert myself? Is Jesus not Lord or not? Right. I know it's just a silly little thing, you know, a house, and you pour a lot into it, and it had a lot of value. It was really going up in value. <laughs> and you're going to let seven single brothers rent it now for a while. And, oh, my poor baby. <laughs> and, and it's almost a bit of an absurd one, right? But, but it's smaller ones than that that can get us all kind of gripped up as well. So here's, here's my, my charge is that this is a week where we really take a, a look. Are we ready to give back to God what is God's? What are your hardest decisions? Is it your reputation at your workplace? Or do you want to keep that for yourself or do you want to give it to God? Is it your friendships? Do you, do you not want to surround yourself? With people that are going to really encourage you in Christ. What is it? Pick the hard stuff. Pick the hardest stuff. Put it in the crucible. See where it ends up in the very end. In the the end though, when you really do come to a place of resignation and surrender and submission to Jesus as Lord again. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to stand up in front of somebody else and say, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. You're not, you're not going to say it. I, I, I know you won't. And you're not going to be like, oh, man, I hated having to take a look, a hard look again and have to affirm him as Lord. It will not be the case. Because the spirit within you will encourage your soul to the depth of, 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 your, of what encouragement can even be. But pick the hardest thing right now that you're wrestling with in your life and decide and really wrestle through whether it takes... Uh, other people helping you, scripture, prayer, prayer walks, prayer walks, prayer walks. Get to that point where no matter what it is, it has been wrestled under submission and we give it all up to Jesus. Amen. Amen.